a reporter from uh, San Jose Mercury News. I gave him the first interview, basically, so he got a sneak peek of what we were doing. And it ended up being the headline of the newspaper the next day, I think March 23, 1995, to be precise. And it changed everything. That's the voice of Kim Palese, the original product manager of Java and the co-founder of software company Marimba, which three years after its 1996 launch went public at a $1.4 billion valuation. This is Mike Maples Jr. from Floodgate, and it's go time with Kim Palese. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. The year is 1995. Netscape's browser has taken the world by storm and created a frenzy of interest around the internet and the World Wide Web. And then the second shoe dropped the Java programming language. Launched seemingly out of nowhere by Sun Microsystems, Java created a new way to make programs that could come alive in web browsers on any computer. Kim Palese was the product manager of Java. Now keep in mind what the world was like when Java was released. Microsoft had won the operating systems wars on the desktop. Their Windows Everywhere strategy was infiltrating every meaningful segment of the market. The launch of Windows 95 was a cultural phenomenon. And then BAM! Sun launches Java completely by surprise. Overnight, the imagination of the developer community was captivated by the possibilities of writing programs once in Java that could run on any computer or any future device for that matter. Kim decided to seize the moment of Java's explosive debut and started Marimba with Arthur Van Hoff, Jonathan Payne, and Sammy Shao. Marimba was designed from the ground up to help customers deploy and manage Java applications. The launch of Marimba was a sensation, and in many ways that Kim would have rather avoided. She became an instant celebrity even outside of Silicon Valley. A year after launch, she was named one of the 25 most influential Americans by Time magazine. I think Kim Palese's story and contributions to the modern tech industry are important. And as you'll see in our discussion, she's as good at handling the ups and downs of the startup roller coaster as anyone you'll ever meet. Let's catch up with her. Kim Palese, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Wonderful to be here. You've been in computers pretty much your whole life. So how did you like how did you get started being interested in computers in the first place? Well, I was lucky to grow up in Berkeley and to live near a place called the Lawrence Hall of Science. And there was a computer in the basement at the Lawrence Hall of Science. I was about 10 years old. It was running this program called Eliza. Eliza was like an online well, a computer psychiatrist. Yep. So um, you basically would have a conversation with Eliza. Eliza would say, how are you feeling today? And as a 10-year-old, I would say, I'm feeling crummy. And Eliza would say, why are you feeling crummy? And then say, I struck out at baseball. And Eliza would then proceed to have a conversation with me. Well, it turned out Eliza was one of the first demonstrations of natural language processing. It was a, mm -hmm. one of the first AI programs essentially written in the 60s to show what natural language processing or real conversation, how computers could could uh, approximate. You just liked it from day one. Exactly. I was a science geek as well. So I was always entering science fairs. 
Um, and so I was sort of really fascinated by the intersection of computing and other scientific disciplines, which is why I focused on biophysics and computer science. And so did you just get right into computers straight out of college then? I did. I did. Um, I actually, after I graduated from Berkeley, I went to University of Washington and did mm -hmm. a, a year of post-baccalaureate computer science coursework. And then I came down to the Valley, came back home, and um, got my first job at the first AI company to go public. It was called IntelliCorp. And so did you go straight from IntelliCorp to Sun? or I did. Okay. Yeah, I was at IntelliCorp for three years and then moved to Sun to work in their AI uh, division, their program, AI program within the software products division. And Eric Schmidt was actually overseeing that. Okay. And uh, John Canegard. It was a great team of, of people uh, in the software products division. And so I, I basically eventually moved into product management at Sun. So like... How did, how did Java get started inside of Sun? Like, what's up with that? Yeah, it was, it's a pretty amazing story. So yeah. there, there was a small team of engineers, software and hardware engineers, who realized that there was a, a, a next wave of computing that was, that was needed, which is software and hardware shouldn't be tied to each other. Software okay. should be able to run on any architecture, hardware platform. I know that sounds kind of obvious, but at the time that was radical. And also there was going to be a world in the future where there was going to be a ubiquitous network that would provide news, entertainment, information on which we would collaborate and communicate. I know that sounds obvious, but back then it well, was not. Well, if I had gone back to SGI after business school, it would have been to work on the Time Warner Orlando kind exactly. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I hear you. Yeah. yeah. So so they basically went to, to the CEO of, of Sun, Scott McNeely, and said, look, you know, Steve Jobs is recruiting us to, to come to Next and build this thing, uh, this platform. So, you know, thanks for everything. We're heading out. And Scott said, you know, what will it take for you to stay and build that platform, that software environment and hardware environment here. And they said, you know, give us a, essentially a company that's separate from Sun, that's completely independent, and essentially a skunk works environment to, to build this thing. And I found out about it essentially very early on. They needed a product manager. Uh, I was coming out of object-oriented technologies at the software products division. And so I came on board to basically figure out how to turn this brilliant technology that these guys were building into a product that was going to be ubiquitous. And was it, what was it called at first? It was called Oak. Okay. So it was Oak. And so you see this Oak project. And so you kind of alluded to this a second ago, but part of the idea was it for it to be cross-platform. Now, was it, was the original thought that uh, uh, there's going to be a, a world of a whole lot of devices other than PCs and you're yes. going to have set-top boxes and video games? Yep. Okay. Handheld devices, embedded devices, you know, very lightweight so okay. the, the software had to be able to be, you know, remotely updatable, plat completely platform independent, secure, um, able to live essentially in anything. So very network centric, very heterogeneous, but not necessarily yet envisioning the web. It was more about multi-device. Right, kind of thing. right. Okay. And so the first ways that we looked at getting it to market were, in fact, going back to the Time Warner trials and yep. interactive TV. Uh, what they were calling the super information superhighway at the time. Digital superhighway, yeah, information superhighway. <laughs> yep. um, so the problem with that is that the SGI, the set-top boxes were SGI they machines were that were $25,000 a piece or whatever. And so we kept trying, kind of running into a wall, figuring out how to get this thing out to the world. There was the Newton, which was one of the first, yep. uh, what was called a PDA, but basically handheld device, uh, brilliant you know, invention from Apple, but again, just not ready to run this software platform. 
And essentially, Sun was kind of looking at the investment they were making into this technology, the team. It wasn't obvious there was a commercial fit. And then the most amazing thing happened, which is Mosaic. Mm -hmm. uh, the first web browser was developed at University of Illinois. And we downloaded the browser, realized if we rewrote it in Oak, we could create the world's first interactive browser and actually enable programs to run inside of web pages versus just hyperlinking text. So Mosaic was basically, I suppose, it's just a way to view static HTML web pages and link right. to other pages. Exactly. And so what could Hot Java Browser version 1.0 do that was so blow away? There were a bunch of different applets, and it was mind-blowing when you saw them for the first time running. So one of the things I did and we did as a team was reach out some, to some developers that we knew and just get them to write applets in Oak. And so we had uh, spreadsheets calculating the value of a portfolio in real time, animations spinning Coke cans and you know animated figures. Uh, we had the image of a human body and when you move the mouse over it, you could see MRI slices and you can imagine doctors collaborating. So just the very visual impact of seeing these programs, these animations, and imagining, you know, in the real world, you know, how this could be ultimately used was was incredibly powerful. And people, as soon as they saw the applets running in the browser, started to realize the power, the true power of the internet, not just document sharing or information exchange, but actually collaborating and running applications. Yeah, so I remember at the time, uh, I had been at this company called Tivoli Systems, and we'd had a pretty good run, and we were bought by IBM it had been a few months after we'd been bought, and uh, Brian Vetter, who was one of our principal engineers, comes running down the hall, and he shows this article on this hot Java browser to me and to Scott Harmon, <laughs> and instantly uh, we were like, oh, crap, we're just sitting on the sidelines here, <laughs> right? We're, sit we're sitting inside of this big company doing client-server stuff, and you know, back in the 94, 95 kinds of time frames, People just assumed that Microsoft had won on the desktop, right. and they were starting to win on the server with Windows NT. Mm -hmm. And so the, the the idea that there could be a technology that would was right once, run anywhere, not controlled by any monopoly supplier was just incredibly empowering. Everybody just immediately connected the dots about right. what it meant. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it was thrilling for us because we were going from, you know, a, a team that had developed something pretty amazing, these engineers, brilliant, but no obvious way to get it out to the world, to suddenly ubiquity, literally. That's yep. what happened overnight. And uh, and then ultimately this became a very important part of Sun's business and helped drive a lot of hardware sales as well. So And so like if, if you think about this through the lens of product market fit, some companies I've worked with, product market fit is like a gradient. You, you, you almost don't know you have it until one day you forgot to ask whether you have it. You're just a company. <laughs> right. And then uh, other times it's just like it just blows up immediately. Like were, was there a palpable moment where you're just like, this is huge. This is going to be huge. Yeah. It, it's interesting. It sort of happened in – in a day, a single day. Okay. <laughs> Just the, the realization, this thing actually, we're going to be able to make this happen. A reporter from uh, San Jose Mercury News, local Valley newspaper here, the major publication in the Valley, and his name is David Bank, and he, I gave him the first interview, basically, so he got a sneak peek of what we were doing, and it ended up being the headline of the newspaper the next day and above the fold headline, you know, why son thinks hot Java will give you a lift. That was the headline. And so we <laughs> went bad. from being this, you know, project that was in danger of being canceled to being, you know, basically uh, a major component of the future. 
of Sun. And we realized people get it. David Bank totally nailed it. He understood the power and the potential of it. He went on to be a Wall Street Journal reporter and actually now is an entrepreneur himself. Um, But just realizing, okay, everyone can see the potential of this technology. There's no stopping it now. Did Was there a point at which the downloads started to explode and like all that stuff? Or did you even track it very much back in the Yeah, days? it was exploding and, nope. you know, phones st- never stopped ringing. And it was literally happened. It was, I think, March 23, 1995, to be precise, when that piece came out. And no one at Sun, very few people at Sun knew even that we existed. We were in a separate location in downtown Palo Alto. Uh, it was actually a spin-out company called First Person. There was uh-huh. a whole separate company. And so it was a total shock to pretty much, you know, everyone at Sun. And it changed everything. We started doing these Java days all over to explain, you know, here's the future of, of what you can do with the Internet. Um, and by the way, along the way, we renamed Oak to Java. The inspiration for the name Java was we were waking up web pages. We were bringing web pages to life by introducing interactivity. What made you decide to start a startup? Because like, it's one thing to do a startup inside of a company, yeah. but like, it's another thing to just will a whole new company into existence. So right. what, 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 got, what, what uh, got you to thinking that you wanted to start Marimba? It was um, realizing that Java could be really unleashed if it was possible to build full enterprise applications using this technology, platform-independent enterprise applications. Again, what you just said, taking it out of the browser, which was just the first reference implementation of it. And we realized to do that, we really needed to create a whole different company. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a there was a, an opportunity. There was about basically within six months of launching Java, three of, a, three of my colleagues and I started talking about doing this and creating a company basically to take Java out of the browser and, you know, to full enterprise Okay. You know, now, but, did, but did Marimba have four? Fa- I thought it had three. Who four? Okay. Yeah. So Arthur Van Hoff, sure. Uh, Jonathan uh, Payne, and okay. Sammy Shio, right. myself. Okay. Nice. And so, so you decide to go start this company. Did you have the idea right away, or was it more just an instinct that th- th- there's going to be an opportunity to build software companies on top of this Java idea? It was a little more formed than that, but okay. we still wanted to be pretty open to what the first product would be and and figuring out what product market fit yeah uh, really would be and so we we actually took uh, about two weeks between Christmas and New Year's at the end of 95 and brainstormed ideas and we went to people that we knew like Andy Bechtelsheim asked his opinion um, should we do this does this make sense he you know was very supportive and others were as well so at the end of that period we went back to to Sun at the beginning in 96 and we went to Scott McNeely, CEO, and said, look, we want to go do this. And then after that, once we founded Marimba, and he was very supportive, we took about a better part of a year really figuring out the right product to build. And we got a lot of offers for to take venture capital yeah. money, and we decided not to. And we just bootstrapped. We actually put 15K in each, yep. so 60K total <laughs> funding. <laughs> and we got this funky little space next to Antonio's Nut House, which is this oh, nice. funky okay. bar in downtown. I know it well. Palo Alto. And we just focused around, you know, let's figure out how to build a product that the, that the world actually needs. We got our first users. Mm-hmm. Uh, PeopleSoft actually was a, cu- a company back then, and they were our first customer. And we started to really solidify this 
enterprise platform for software management. So you're you're kind of uh, just cranking on stuff next to Antonio's nut house, <laughs> and uh, each of you's bootstrapped it with fifteen thousand yeah. dollars each. When did you decide it was time to raise a Series A, and like why do that in the first place? Right. So we had our first customers, uh, PeopleSoft, and a couple of others, and we started to to realize, okay, we've got a product here. Now we need to start hiring people. We need to bring on a team that knows how to go out and yeah. you know sell this and market it and expand the engineering team. So we we actually um, called back uh, Kleiner Perkins because John Doerr had initially reached out and said they were interested. And they had a Java fund. They had started a whole fund around Java. And we had the opportunity um, really to, to, to choose who to work with, and which was unique. And it was because you know I had three incredibly brilliant co-founders and we had something that looked like the beginnings of product market oh, fit. Oh, product manager of Java, pretty, <laughs> pretty good background. Yeah. yeah. So we we really clicked with with Kleiner and uh, ended up taking money from them. And how much did you raise in the series? Four million. Four million. Okay. Yeah. Which back then was pretty. That you know, was serious. Money. Now they would call that a seed round or right. a, I don't know, seed <laughs> extension. Who knows? Exactly. But, but so right around the time you were doing this. Uh, I was leaving Tivoli, and, and so I think that's where I first got to know you, you know, as a person, right? Yeah. I only know. I remember about that time, you kind of had this second kind of, I don't know, getting caught in this tornado of attention. Uh, mm. So, like, Java was just, it became a thing, and it just blew up. Kim Palese kind of blew up, too, right? I, I remember you'd be, like, in these articles about, like, 25 most influential Americans and stuff like that. Like, that must have been kind of crazy. Right? Like, what was that like? It was crazy. In fact, I remember when Time Magazine called and said, you're going to be on this list. I said, how can I not be on that list? <laughs> like, I don't want to be on that list. Yeah. <laughs> this can only bring trouble. It's like the Sports Illustrated cover jinx kind of thing. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but I realized, you know, that there was there was nothing I could do to stop that. And it was kind of crazy and bizarre. But I also realized it had nothing to do with me. It was about the fascination with the Internet, Java, and startups. I mean, this was sort of the world was waking up to the fact that there was a thing called Silicon Valley and the internet. And wow, that's interesting. And so suddenly there was sort of mainstream media was paying so yeah. much attention. There were not a lot of startups as well. And you just personified the trend so well, right? You were just like the from central casting of the person they would want to talk about. Exactly. The team, you know, yeah. our investors, we had a, a great story, but I was very concerned about that distracting us. I did not want that amount of attention or, you know, any attention to be distracting to what we were doing. So I was very focused on running the company, figuring out how to scale now that we had figured out sort of the core product and how to how to scale this thing and create a company that would thrive and and, you know, be very successful long term. Had nothing to do with the attention. It was a challenge though, because I was a CEO, so I had to be out there giving yeah. speeches. And giving interviews just like CEOs of other startups were. Yep. It's just the coverage on me was something I couldn't control. And, and it's, I mean, for what it's worth, I've, I've met people who get attention in the press, but they're definitely cultivating it. And they're like, that's a significant part of why they're excited to be an entrepreneur. And I, ne I never got that energy from you in, in that time. Yeah. Right? Like any anytime we ever talked about something, it was like, products, customers, like right. later on when we were at Motive, how do we make our products work together? But it was never, it was, it was never even like what's going to be the PR implications if we do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. It was always just like, what are we building here? Exactly. And that's what I told the team. Look, all that matters is we just keep our heads down, build this thing, and ultimately 
whatever happens externally will have nothing to do with you know the value yeah, that we're building. In the here. end, the customers decide. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and, and did it ever create any friction among the team members? You're getting all this attention, but there's four founders, or were they more just had a sense of humor about it all? Yeah. No, that didn't create friction, and they <laughs> they knew me well enough to know this was not something I was this cultivating, like and this was yeah. not something I could control. Were there ever times it felt like it backfired, or did it just kind of just it, it kind of went away for a time, and you're just relieved to not? Well, there's always the roller coaster, you know, thing, story that, right? So they want to build you up and then they want to tear you down. So there was sort of the inevitable backlash on attention that I never sought in the first place. But I wasn't paying attention to the backlash, just like I hadn't been paying attention to, you know, the the sort of the frenzy in the first place. So throughout all of that, we built a profitable company, took it public and, uh, you know, had a really good exit. Yep. So, so when did you go public again? 99. 99. And who, who was your lead bank? Uh, it was Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley. Uh, okay. So, J- you went, yeah. so, so you went out in uh, 99. What was different from Sun and Marimba? Like what, what, were you, what were you just not really ready for in terms of doing a raw startup? Probably this attention that we're talking about because yeah. it was just bizarre and came out of kind of nowhere. But what, I, what was different was the ability to chart our own course. Obviously, you know, when you're in a big company doing – start, even though, though First Person was a spin-out company of Sun, we were still part of the mothership. Mm-hmm. And so our, you know, destiny was always whatever Sun wanted our destiny to be. Yeah. And, you know, with Marimba, obviously, we had to choose. We, For example, one of the early things I remember is deciding we can't focus on both B2B and B2C. We either have to be B2B or B2C, but we can't do both. And so it was saying no and deciding what not to do. Yeah. And, you know, having 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 the freedom to do that was obviously great, but also scary because what if we're making the wrong choice here, you know, and all the opportunities that we're saying no to, that's really scary saying no to opportunities, but focus is so critical at yeah. that stage. And did you find, like some companies I find, We'll have a contrarian insight where most of the people disagree with their idea, but a, a very tiny set of people are like, oh, my gosh, where have you been all my life? We're in on a secret together. Or let's go build this movement together. Yeah. Did most customers pretty much say, OK, that makes sense? Or did you encounter resistance to your point of view in the early days? It, most of them got it pretty fast because this Internet thing was here. They realized whether they like it or not the the old model of client server computing was going away yeah. and now they they had to have applications that could go outside the firewall be updated remotely and securely in an asynchronous environment where you're disconnecting and plugging back in again and you need a software platform that does that and there wasn't anything else out yep. there yep. I mean, we were it and you know because i had three incredible co-founders, and then we built an amazing engineering team, this product really worked. It was rock solid. And so as soon as they could see that and they realized this, you know, we need to be able to to build and provide internet applications, both internally and externally for customers, uh, they realized they needed a platform that did that. I I bet recruiting was a bonanza in the early days. Yeah. I I think I remember hearing rumors of people showing up at the front saying, I want to work at Marimba and stuff. With T-shirts. Yeah. (laughs) They had made. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had an amazing team. No question. In the, in the early days, were there any near death experiences on the way to product market fit or was it pretty straightforward on the product front? It was, uh, it was, we grew quickly. So we did 10 million in revenues the first year, doubled the second year, doubled again, you know, third year. We, we had a pretty fast trajectory and we actually didn't end up raising much money. We, We did a series B 
it was uh, 12 million, but that was it. So we raised a total of 16 and we, we were profitable. <laughs> and, and were there any sort of super critical hires in those early days that sort of made the difference? Steve Williams, you mentioned. Okay. So yeah. our first VP of sales who came out of Tivoli, as yeah. you did, and yeah. understood how to sell against the competition, right? Because yeah. the previous generation's version of what we were doing, um, he was critical. And then, you know, just key engineers, uh, Every every executive that we brought on in those early years was was critical, and it's that's the case when you're, you know, in those formative stages. And you know, these were people who knew a lot about stuff I didn't know about, you know. And so I remember getting really great advice, which is you know, hire people smarter than you who know much more than you, um, you know, about their given domains. And I did that, and that that worked. And I. I trusted them. You know, there was yeah. always a very collaborative environment internally about what's the right thing to do here. There's no kind of power struggle or posturing because you're just looking to bring in the smartest people and figure out stuff quickly with them and trust, you know, that they know what they're doing. And then what about running a public company? What, what was that like? Different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Different how? Different better or not so much um, better? Well, you know, the craziness about a stock price having nothing to do with the actual company. And, you know, I had to explain to employees and people got it that that stock price, just ignore it. Do not look at it. Of course, people do. But it has nothing to do with how we're doing. We're building this company for the long term. So focus on what you're doing and, you know, do your best job what you're doing. We will ultimately build a very profitable, successful company with you know, a great exit, no matter how or when, when that happens. Um, and your stock will be worth a lot if you just focus on the task at hand. And did you run into any problems with sort of the the, the, the people who try to sell you short and then they go on the chat boards and try to say, you know, oh, Marimba's about to miss the quarter and then it causes FUD among the customers. So you really can miss the quarter because, you know, they're just they're hoping you fail so the stock goes down. Right. Did, did you yeah, avoid there was that? there was always sort of some of that in the background which you couldn't yeah. control. Um, but we were also very conservative in the way that we you know managed our our financials so we were never um, you know making predictions that we couldn't actually deliver on. Nevertheless, like you're saying, you can't help it when people want to game yeah. The market, and we just ignored that. We just and I suppose you, as much as we could. yeah, your business model, if I remember right, had a lot of subscription revenue yeah. aspects. To exactly, it, right? so it's exactly. pretty predictable. Yeah. Okay. How did the Marimba story play out? You know, yeah, because you, know, you, you know, you go public in the uh, 1999, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then everything crashes. Like, how did that impact Marimba? It actually didn't end up impacting us because we had built you know, in, a, in the most fundamental, important way, because we had built a real business. We had customers who needed the products, whether the market had crashed or not, they wanted to keep, yeah. you know, adding more seats and scaling up the deployments and other customers, you know, prospects heard about it and wanted to, to use the software. So, the, you know, the core business model was very solid and was not affected. Our stock price was affected, you know, yeah. like everybody's. And so there was a period of time during which we just hunkered down and just kept building out the core customer base and our market leadership and then created a really powerful partnership with BMC mm -hmm. in Houston. And they ended up ultimately acquiring the company. And what year was that? 2004. 2004. Yeah. Okay. So and were there any but were there any times in the after the bubble and stuff where – it felt like marimba was existentially threatened or were you just kind of just sticking to your knitting and just keep going oh totally the latter i mean it was okay. so clear that ultimately this the world needed this platform yeah whether it was going to be us building it 
providing it or some other company coming in. It's, you know, it was so inevitable. You need a powerful software management platform and essentially yep. what we're calling IoT today. Yep. And where the thing could be a server, a desktop, or a, you know, a device or a sensor. And you need a software environment that can deliver and manage software everywhere. As it turns out, the uh, IoT platform for Samsung is Marimba's today. Okay. Oh, so nice. Samsung ultimately, BMC spun out uh, the, the Marimba business unit later, which did very well for them internally. So it was a really successful acquisition for BMC as well as for, for Marimba and our investors. And then that got acquired. I think it was Symphony, Harman Kardon, somewhere along the way. There was a combination of acquisitions that resulted in Samsung now owning Marimba, and it updates Teslas and, and uh, is in Starbucks <laughs> and all over wild. Wall Street still and That's 20 wild. years plus later. That's all. Is there anything you do different, knowing what you know now about your CEO and founder tenure at Marimba? Were there were there any mistakes you wish you could have back or was it just kind of, you just kind of made it happen the best you could and uh, wouldn't change much? Hmm. There were times when I, because when you're first time CEO, you will often defer to the advice that you get from, you know, your, your investors. Yeah. Sometimes they were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure. And, uh, <laughs> we had great investors and I'm, not, I'm yeah. not pointing out any particular investor, but it's important to know when your gut tells you you're right. And mm -hmm. particularly because investors don't spend 24-7 in the market that yep. you're spending 24-7 in. Yep. And so just just being really solid that, you know, you're sticking to your guns no matter how powerful and, you know, how much control an investor might have. When you know your market, you're the one who has the, the best idea of what yeah, to do. Yeah, and in the end, the VCs will forget the advice they offered pretty quick. Right. right? They'll, they'll remember whether you made the numbers and were successful. But, exactly. Yeah. So – there's somebody out there right now who's probably starting a company facing uh, startup craziness, the roller coaster, mm -hmm. maybe even having their own startup near-death experiences. What's the one piece of advice you would offer founders when they're in that crazy phase? You know, what's the what's the most important thing you think you learned that can help people? I guess the one thing that kind of stands out is that it knowing that it will be this emotional roller coaster and even you know, within a single day, you'll go from elation because, wow, you got your first deal. You figured this thing out to, you know, despair because one of your key team members just told you they're leaving to start their own company. And that emotional roller coaster is really tough to ride day in, day out. But it's just part of, it's part of reality. So just knowing that and realizing you're going to get through this day to day, week to week, and not letting that rattle you that's probably the most important thing I could I could tell any entrepreneur and remind myself still of. And, and have you come to like the roller coaster or do you just kind of deal with it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't like it because it's, you know, it's really hard going from the extremes, but I'm able to manage it in a way that I think as a, you know, first time entrepreneur, how do you know how to do that? Right. Yeah. And that feeling of despair, you know, yeah. <laughs> so I, I can I can see through it. And I can see the long term more easily now that I've been through multiple startups and and understand this is just comes with the territory. Well, Kim, thanks so much for coming. I really appreciated your taking the time. Oh, this is such a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Okay, we'll talk again soon. Okay.
Thanks for listening to Starting Greatness. You can follow me on Twitter at M2JR and please shoot me an email with any comments or questions to greatness at floodgate.com. I hope you'll subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. And until we meet again, remember, greatness is a decision. Thank you.